Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Amen. Well, if you would, please navigate yourself to Romans chapter 4, passage that was just read. And uh, as you do, I will pause for one more word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for, Lord, your word and, Lord, the way that you speak to us through your word. Father, what we uh, do not yet have, we pray that you would provide. And, Father, we pray that where we need instruction, that you would instruct. And, Lord, we pray that where there's need for encouragement, that you would encourage. And, uh, Father, that you would meet every need. And, Lord, that your living word would just be on display. May Jesus Christ be held forth, and may the gospel be clear and bold, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe that this uh, coming Saturday is July 4th already. It kind of snuck up on me this year. And I was looking to see what the festivities were going to be here in our town and uh, discovered it. they've actually, not surprisingly, been canceled this year. Right? There's not going to be any fireworks, not going to be able to have those this year. But I was still thinking about fireworks, even though they're canceled, just due to uh, the, the July 4th holiday. And I was thinking about how, you know when you're, you're there, you get there early and it's still light outside, but over time, you know, the, the sun sets and it, it slowly gets dark. And before you know it, you look around and everything's kind of shadowy and you can't, maybe you can't even really see the people that are around you. That's the way it is here in East Brunswick. They do it out in this field. It gets pretty dark out there. There's not a lot of street lights around. And then all of a sudden the fireworks start. And up goes, you know, those first couple of fireworks and pah, and there's a flash of light. And, and if you aren't looking up at the fireworks, but you look around at the people around you, suddenly everything is just like daylight, right, for just a moment. And you can, everything is just clearly illuminated. I was thinking about that because the, the New Testament, suddenly illuminating the Old Testament, it's kind of like that. That's, that's what the, the New Testament did when, when Jesus came. He really illuminated everything that was in the Old Testament. And it was just like this brilliant flash of light. Another analogy I was thinking about, you know, walking into a, a dark room and you're groping around. Maybe it's a room you've never been in before. You're groping around, feeling around for a lamp to turn on, and suddenly someone flips on a light switch, right? And suddenly everything becomes clear. Well, that's what Jesus did, Right? The coming of Jesus didn't change what was in the room, but the, the coming of Jesus suddenly and brilliantly revealed what was there all along. Augustine of, of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the old, the new is revealed. Let me say that one more time. In the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old revealed. Have you guys heard that before? It's kind of a, a handy way of rem- remembering sort of a, a relationship that exists between the Old and the New Testament. Well, I've been making a big deal here in, in Romans chapter 3 and 4 in particular 
about the, the new and better manifestation of, of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. The new and better manifestation of, of the righteousness of God. You know, we, we read in, in Romans 1 through 3 about the manifestation of, of God's righteousness that we receive as his justice against our sin. We receive his righteousness as wrath. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, there was made clear, there was manifested a new and better righteousness that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same righteousness, but it, Jesus made it possible for us to actually receive God's righteousness in a way that we are benefited by it and not destroyed by it. But, but as we talk about that, as we talk about Jesus being this new and better manifestation of Christ's righteousness, I don't want you to get the idea that somehow the things we're talking about here, justification by faith alone, redemption, propitiation, none of these things, particularly justification by faith alone, that's what we're talking about this morning, none of these things are new. Right? They're, they are, are just as present in the Old Testament. Justification by faith alone is not new. Now, that's kind of my big idea for the, the, the morning here from, from Romans chapter 4, that justification by faith is not new. But before we dive into that, I want to talk a little bit about why that should matter to you this morning. Why, why I really want you to pay attention. I've noticed that, that even people who would sort of nod their heads and amen what I just said about justification by faith not being new. The same people who will nod their heads in, in agreement and amen that. We'll, we'll treat the Old Testament like it's comprised of a bunch of disconnected, moralistic stories. Right? So they'll open up the Old Testament and they'll, they'll maybe you're, you're reading your, your daily bread in the morning or you're reading, you know, doing a devotional in the morning, reading your Old Testament scriptures. And, and we begin to view that Old Testament story as if it has nothing more to teach us than, hey, you should be a lot more like Abraham, or you should be like David, right? Be like David here when he does this, but don't be like David when he when he sinned like that, right? Be like that. Be like David. Be stronger. Be more faithful. Be more righteous. All these things. But that's not the point of the Old Testament. The point of the Old Testament is that there is a bigger unifying story that encompasses the whole Bible. And it, it tells a better message than try your best to be more like David and less like Saul. There is a, a bigger unifying story that tells us how ungodly people can be justified by a holy God. It's the same story from beginning to end. And so I want to challenge you this morning to, to take the lesson of Romans chapter 4 as we talk about it this morning and apply it very practically to your life about how you read your Old Testament. Because this is the way the Apostle Paul read the Old Testament. And I'll show you what I mean here in just a minute. Paul is going to demonstrate that the way of salvation, justification by faith alone, is not new. And he's going to show us through two Old Testament heroes, Abraham and David. All right, so first up here, Abraham. Ungodly Abraham was justified by faith, verses 1 through 5. So Paul, oh, actually, let's, let's read here this first verse. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? 
Paul doesn't beat around the bush here. He goes right to the source. Abraham was kind of a big deal. He kind of was and is a big deal, especially in Judaism. I'm not sure really if there is a good American analog to how big of a deal Abraham was to the Jewish people. So think about it for just a moment. For just a moment. Not, not only was Abraham a founding father, he was the founding father of the Jewish nation, right? And when, when they say that he's the, the forefather, he's the founding father, they don't just mean that he helped write the Constitution, right? They mean that he's literally their great-great-great-grandfather, and everybody in the nation is, is distantly related to him. Kind of a big deal. And on top of all that, their nation was formed because of Abraham's special relationship with God that was formed by God through a covenant with him. So at the same time, Abraham is all at once the, the founder of the Jewish nation, the Jewish family, and the Jewish faith. Kind of a big deal. And they looked up to him so much that they, they actually began to revere him in a way that I think was not scriptural. Rabbinical Judaism in the first century taught that Abraham was justified by his obedience. That, that is the exact opposite of, of justification by faith. They taught that he was justified by his obedience. They taught that through keeping the works of the law, even though the law hadn't, hadn't even been given yet, they point to a, a verse in, in Genesis 26, 5, I think it is, where um, God speaks of Abraham keeping my commands and my laws. Even though the law hadn't even been given yet, they, they saw Abraham as meriting God's favor, not only for himself, but for the entire covenant family. And so it was a really big deal. So if, if you were in Abraham, if you, were, if you had the sign of the covenant, and you were a descendant of Abraham, and you were in Abraham, then some of Abraham's merit, some of his righteousness, then was essentially attributed to your account. Right? They called it the merit of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're such good guys, apparently, that, that their righteousness trickled down to their descendants. And so just merely being in Abraham, related to him in some way, gained you that kind of merit. You can see this attitude reflected in their extra-scriptural writings, right? Not scripture, but in sort of the extra-biblical writings that we have. So there was a book called Jubilees. In Jubilees, chapter 23, verse 10, it's not scripture, it says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And then again, another extra-scriptural writing here, the prayer of Manasseh, verse 8. It said, Abraham did not sin against you. 1 Maccabees 2.52, was not Abraham found faithful when tested and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Right? So they're looking back at the story of Abraham and, and saying that Abraham was reckoned righteous because of his, faith, his faithfulness, not God's faithfulness. So you see here reflected a justification by works mentality, and it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the scriptures. And that fundamental misunderstanding of the scriptures points to a potential gospel confusion that Paul is, is being very careful to make sure is cleared up. 
And so it's very important for, for Paul to raise this question that he raises in, in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What was this big deal guy? What, what did he gain according to the flesh? Let's, let's use him as a, t- as a test case here. Well, he goes on in verse 2. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham was really so godly on his own and somehow merited his, his own salvation, then Abraham would have something to boast about, that we would be able to look in the Old Testament and see that when Abraham is given righteousness, we would see that it was somehow, you know, it was rewarded to him. We would see that in Scripture. I don't know if you remember last week when we were uh, finishing up the end of chapter 3 here, we were talking about the exclusion of boasting. Paul asked the question in chapter 3, verse 27. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? He says it's excluded. By what principle is it excluded? What principle, what common sense principle excludes boasting? Is it the principle of works? You might remember I shared an example of how I fixed my air conditioner and it really led, I noticed it led to me boasting about this, you know, this uh, accomplishment. Here, I'm getting two weeks of boasting out of this here. Right? That's the principle of works. You do the work, but if you pick up the phone and you call the repairman, you've got nothing to boast about, right? Somebody else did the work. On the other hand here, the, the principle of faith excludes boasting. Just as if, uh, the example I used last week, I had locked my, car, my key in my car without a spare key, and I was completely shut out from it. The principle of faith excludes boasting. It shuts you out from it. And so Paul is now applying this test. You know, what, what is the principle here that we can look at Abraham and say, did Abraham have righteousness by the principle of works or by the principle of faith. So what shall we say? Was, what was gained by Abraham? And Paul answers here in verse 3. He says, what do the scriptures say? I love that. I love that answer. As, as one scholar said, uh, this shows both the, the unity and the authority of scriptures. It shows the unity of scripture because Paul is talking here about justification by faith, but he's going back into the Old Testament, and he's going to show the exact same principle at work in the Old Testament. It shows the unity of Scripture between the New Testament and the Old Testament. also shows the authority of Scripture, right? Paul isn't basing his argument merely upon because I said so, right? No, he pulls out his, his copies of the Old Testament, his scrolls, and he unfolds. He says, let's unfold the Scriptures here. What do the Scriptures say? I read a, a pastor this week that told a story about an experience he had in a, a church that he was pastoring in, in the Deep South. <clears throat> and <coughs> one Sunday or early, <coughs> excuse me, I think I swallowed a bug. <clears throat> That's one problem I don't have inside. <clears throat> Anyways, this, this pastor was pastoring a church in the Deep South. Oh, well. Okay. And, and one Sunday, early in his ministry, a, a woman comes up to him and says, Pastor, there's too much clapping going on in this church. Right? 
which the pastor replies, well, it does say in, in Psalm 47, 1, clap your hands unto the Lord, all you people. To which the woman replies, I knew you were going to quote the Bible. <laughs> As in, let's not bring the Bible into this. Come on. Come on, pastor. Don't quote the scriptures to me. But no, honestly, seriously, how, how refreshing is it when someone says, what, what, what do the scriptures say? Show me not, not just what you think or what tradition says, but what, what do the scriptures say? That's, we want to be that kind of people, right, that, that goes back to the Bible, always back to the Bible, back to the Bible, checking to make sure that these things are true. No matter who stands at this pulpit, always check it out for yourself. Go back to the scriptures. Paul says, what do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And this is just such an important verse in, in the, the Bible. And it's quoted several times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it again at a really clutch moment in Galatians chapter 3, when he's talking about justification by faith. James, the Lord's brother, also quotes this verse in James chapter 2 and verse 23. Now, some people think that James and Paul contradict one another in the way that they, uh, that the, the way that they quote this verse. And I kid you not, I could literally preach a whole other sermon just on this right here. Right? In fact, I did do this once. You probably may not remember. A couple years ago, I did preach a sermon on this this very topic. Um, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to focus in on the difference between James and Paul. But I do want to plant a couple of seeds in your mind in case you decide to look that up later today. In fact, I would encourage you to study this on your own. It, it appears like Paul is saying we are justified by faith and James is saying, no, we're justified by works. But to the contrary, Romans chapter 2 that we just got done studying, I, I've never noticed this before, okay, until I preached through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2 is Paul is confronting the hypocrites, the the religious hypocrites, is really making the same point that James makes in James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead, right? So we are saved by a faith that is, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. In other words, it, it, it's not enough, as R.C. Sproul used to say, it's not enough to just have a profession of faith, what matters is the possession of faith, right? You can profess anything. You can profess to be Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, but that doesn't make it so, right? Profession is nothing. Possession is what matters. Do you, have, do you possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you have a real and living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that possession of faith in your life will bear fruit but the fruit doesn't save you. The root is what saves you. The root is the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our good works are, are merely the fruit of that. And so Genesis 15, 6 is, is a really important verse in the Bible because it is such an early and pithy and memorable expression of the gospel. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you are, are familiar, oh, I forgot to mention my second point about 
James and Paul. Sorry, let me back that up here for just a minute. I also want to remind you that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, guess who meets? The Apostle Paul and the Lord's brother James, two big leaders in the, in the New Testament church. And when they meet, guess what the topic of conversation was between these two great men? Justification by faith alone. That was the topic of their conversation. And not only them, but the whole uh, church there in Jerusalem. Sola fide. Is, is the gospel by faith alone, or do we need to ask the Gentiles to be circumcised? That was the topic of Acts chapter 15. You can go back and read it. And the two big players were Paul and James. And guess what happens? They come together, and they agree, and, and they say, yes, justification is by faith alone. And they end up writing a letter and sending it out to all the Gentile churches. Guess what? You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You're not saved by your works, by keeping the works of the law. So that's just a seed to plant. If you want to go back and study that further, try to reconcile Romans chapter 4, James chapter 2. I would commend that to you. Now, if you're familiar with Abraham, then you undoubtedly know some of the famous works of righteousness that Abraham did by faith. He did a lot of really great feats of, of righteousness, great feats of faith. And you could probably list some of those off, especially if you've been to Sunday school at all or read the book of Genesis. But guess what? None of the works that are, are mentioned in Genesis are mentioned here in, in uh, Genesis chapter 15 when it talks about Abraham being made righteous, right? There, it, there's no list of the, the wonderful things that Abraham did, and therefore God gave him his righteousness. To the contrary, who was Abraham before God called him? He, what's that? Abram. He was Abram. That's a good point. He had a different name, right? God completely changed his identity. But who was who was Abraham? He was, he was a, a pagan, right? He lived in the land of Ur, of, of the Chaldeans, right? And, and, and he was an idol worshiper. It tells us this in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, when Joshua was kind of summing up the history of Israel for his people. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. And they served other gods. There it is right in the scriptures. Joshua 24 to Abraham, Abram or Abraham was an idol worshiper before God called him. Right? But then God called him and God made certain unconditional promises to him. And the scriptures say Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? That is how we are... are notified that Abram is, is righteous. And, and there it is, justification by faith alone in the life of the forefounding faith founder of Judaism. And, and Paul is notice, noticing here, as I said, that Abram didn't do X, Y, Z, good deed, and then God paid him what he deserved. Paul says that, that that kind of lingo doesn't even enter into Genesis 15, 16. Rather, Paul really latches on to the word that that is used here in the Old Testament, this word counted, that it was counted to him as righteousness. That's not a, uh, that's not a word you use 
when you're referring to employment that it, as if it were a wage. This is an accounting term where um, one scholar put it this way, where something is counted to a person that is not inherent to that individual. Can someone grab me my, my notes there? It, it's a term where something is counted. Thank you. Where something is counted to you that is not inherent to that individual. So. I was thinking of a way to, to illustrate this. But first, um, I wanted to, to just mention the Hebrew word here is chashab, for you Hebrew scholars out there. <laughs> and the Greek word is logizomai, right? And this word is actually used 11 times throughout the passage. I actually went through Romans chapter 4 and I highlighted all the times that Paul says counted. I recommend you doing the same. It, it, it may be in your translation the word credited or even imputed or reckoned. They, they all mean the same thing here, that, it, that it's something that isn't yours, but it's being credited to you. It's being counted to your account. I was thinking about how to illustrate this. I, you know, I have a couple of, of really close friends in my life where it wouldn't be unusual if, you know, if they lived here in town, which they don't, but it wouldn't be unusual if they did live here in town that if that they would just walk right in my front door without knocking and maybe go to the kitchen, open up the fridge and start rooting around in, in the fridge, right? They're that close of a friend. I wouldn't even bat an eye if they walked in the front door, started rooting around them. They have fridge privileges, right? I have some, I have some really close friends like that. Maybe you do too. Well, I was thinking about some of those friends and I was thinking about how um, with one of them in particular, my friend Wayne, sometimes I'll, I'll find myself actually referring to him as Uncle Wayne to my kids. He's not a part of my family by the flesh, but he's such a close friend that I have counted it to him. I've credited to him the status of uncleship, if you will. That's kind of a good, a good illustration of what the scriptures mean here by something being counted to Abraham as righteousness. In fact, in Genesis chapter 31, uh, Jacob was getting ready to flee from his father-in-law, Laban. And he's, he begins to explain to his two wives, Rachel and Leah, the need to flee from Laban. And he kind of goes in this long, exp this long wordy explanation about why he's fleeing. And then he turns to his wives and, and Rachel and Leah reply to him in verse 15. They say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? That word regarded there is, is our word. Hashab. Hashab. I got to get the guttural going there for the Hebrew. And in the Greek translation, it's, it's our word that we find right here in Romans chapter 4, logizomai. They're basically saying, isn't our father counting us as foreigners, even though we are, are his daughters? Our father is reckoning us, counting us as foreigners in his sight. It's the same word. It's the same word that we see in, in Genesis chapter 15, 6, when we see that Abraham is being reckoned or counted as righteous. It's not something that's inherent to him. It's something that God just sort of declares over him. This is justification by faith. And so... 
Think about for just a moment the promise that was made to Abram in, in Genesis chapter 15. God made a promise to Abram that here this guy, he was like in his 80s by this point. And God, God speaks to him and says, I'm going to make your descendants as countless as the stars in the heavens. You know, look up at the sky. If you can count them, then you can count your descendants. It was something that Abram simply could not do in his own flesh, even though he tried, <laughs> if you know the story of Abram. And yet Abram simply believed, and God credited, he counted it to him as righteousness. Now look at verse 4. It says, Now to the one, oh, I'm still in the book of Acts. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And this is just another common sense illustration. You know, when you go to work and you put in a, a week or two of really hard work and it, it's finally paycheck time and you receive that paycheck and you, you pull it out and you look at it and you make sure that they paid you what they were supposed to pay you, hopefully, you don't go up to your employer and say, wow, thank you, you know? Thank you for, for giving this to me. No, you, you, you take it, it with a sense of, you owed this to me, right? I, I did my work. Now it's time for you to, to, to make it right. And in fact, if they don't pay you, I think the law would back you up and, and you taking them to court and getting get the money that you deserve. You earned it. Paul is saying that here in, in Romans chapter 4. He's saying, the one, uh, to the one who works, his wages are not counted to him, not in, in this way we're talking about where it's just imputed to you or reckoned to you. It's not counted as a gift, but as his due. It's what you deserve. Right? But on the other hand, ver verse 5. I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It really it couldn't be any more plain than this. We not only don't earn our own righteousness, but to the contrary, through faith, God reckons it to us who are unworthy of it. He reckons it to the ungodly. He imputes it to our account. Now, if that was true of the ungodly Abram, this pagan idolater called by God and declared righteous simply because he believed, then it can also be true of you this morning, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. You can hear the promises of God and believe that when Christ died on the cross for sins, that he died for your sins. And through faith in him, his righteousness can be counted to your account and your sin can be counted to Jesus' account and paid for on the cross. And that's good news. And we see it all the way back in the Old Testament. Secondly here, Paul... I've got to get some better, a better system here. Secondly, Paul turns to talk about David. Oh, good grief. Thank you. Yeah. Good thing I number my pages. 
So Paul gives more than one example. This isn't just an isolated example. He now turns to the beloved David. Now, let's just read these verses, verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I wanted you to learn the definition of justification that is, in fact, I should quiz you right now, but I'm not going to do that. If you were to be stopped by, like, walking around New York City and Jimmy Kimmel or somebody were to stop you on the sidewalk and ask you, stick a mic in your face and say, tell me the definition of justification. The two words I hope that would pop out of your mouth is declared righteous. Declared righteous. That's what God does. He declares us to be righteous. That's what justification means. Now, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that a lot of people remember the meaning of justification by doing a little play on the word, right? They say, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Have you heard that before? Justification means just as if I'd never sinned. And that, that's true, but it really only gets at about half of what justification means. Justification does mean pardon of our sins, just as if I'd never sinned. But if you're going to define it that way, you should also say, just as if I'd always obeyed, right? Because that's what justification is. Not only is there a pardoning that takes away your sin, but there's also a declaration of righteousness positively, just as if I'd always obeyed. And I was thinking about it, and the story of Abraham really emphasizes more of that, that reception of of righteousness just by believing, just as if I'd always obeyed. That was kind of what Paul was proving uh, through the story of Abraham. But now as he turns to the story of David, David is really going to emphasize for us here more the other side of this, just as if I'd never sinned. Because guess what? David, as, as righteous as he was, David is known for some pretty big sins that he committed, wasn't he? He was known for uh, coveting his neighbor's wife, which led him to commit adultery with her, impregnating her in the process, and which then led him to murdering the guy's wife to cover it up, right? I mean, David had that, that mark on his record that Abraham never really had quite in the same way, right? And, and most people, when they think about David, they can't help but think about that story. So Paul quotes here Psalm 32 from the beloved David. And there's little doubt here. If you turn back to, to Psalm 32, there's very little doubt in my mind that verses 3 and 4 of this psalm in particular really give you sort of the experience that David had as he was covering up his sin. He says here, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Right? So that, that's ex describing what happens when you, when you have unconfessed sin in your life. It just gnaws at you. It eats at you. And that was David's experience. 
But then in verse 5, David confesses his sin. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And, And that experience of having covered up his sin and then confessing his sin explains why in verses 1 and 2, which is the, the verses that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, Paul can, or, I'm sorry, David can say, sort of from experience, hey, listen to me. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Right? I've been there. I, I tried to cover up my sin, and then I finally, it ate away at me. I finally confessed it, and I'm here to announce to you today, look, blessed is the one who confesses his sin whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts. There's our word again. All right, counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's justification again by faith. In the gospel, our sin is imputed to Christ. Our sin is counted on him so that God can righteously judge it on his shoulders. And Christ's righteousness is counted to us. And so through Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. That's the imputation of our sin onto Christ. So that in him, in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's the imputation of Christ's righteousness onto us. You gotta understand this counting, this accounting of the gospel, if you wanna understand it. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. And so David is saying here, listen to me, I truly know what it means to be blessed. And I'm gonna close with this. I just wanna talk a little bit about what it means to be blessed. You know, this word actually can legitimately be translated as happy. As happy. Are you, are you happy? But I think the reason we don't translate it that way is because we have all kinds of ideas of what it means to be happy that are completely separate from having the, the, the face of God shine upon you. But to be blessed certainly includes this idea of happiness, doesn't it? And I can, I can still remember that God used uh, someone preaching from the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus began saying, who's, who's really blessed? I can still remember a preacher asking me the question, are you happy? And the Holy Spirit took that and pierced me to the heart because I wasn't happy. I was actually miserable in my sin. I had the experience of Psalm 32 where I was hiding my sin and my, I was keeping silent about it. My bones were wasting away through my groanings all the day long. But then I confessed my sin. And I came to know what it means to truly be happy, to truly be blessed. Not based upon my outward circumstances, but based upon the face of God shining towards me in Jesus Christ. Right? Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
That's what it means to be blessed. That's what it means to be happy. We can have that joy, that peace, that happiness in Christ, no matter what's going on. So my prayer for you this morning is that God might allow you, like David in Psalm 32, to sense the deadness of your sin. He might bring you to the end of yourself, so to speak, where you feel the emptiness of it. And that Psalm 32, 3 and 4 might be something that you know by experience. So that then in verse 5, you can know by experience what it's like to uncover that sin before God and confess it. And know the blessing of forgiveness. My prayer is that you might finally know the peace of saying, like the old hymn says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Amen? Amen. There's one unifying story that unites the whole Bible, and that is how the holy God can be justified with ungodly people like Abraham, like David, and like you and me. And God revealed this in in shadowy forms in the Old Testament, but it has been recently gloriously revealed here late in time by a flash of illuminating light in the person of Jesus Christ. And Christian, you need to know the accounting transactions that took place at the cross on your behalf. You need to know the sort of the, um, the accounting work of the gospel. That's not at all even a shred by your works, but it's all through the counting of God, of your sins upon the shoulders of an innocent substitute, that you might then be counted righteous simply by faith. Don't settle for random, disconnected, moralistic tales that only tell you to be more like Abraham or to be more like David. See how these men's stories tie into the everlasting story and join the ranks of those who have been justified by faith. Join the ranks of ungodly men and women who trust solely in God's grace as a gift through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we thank you for this remarkable good news of justification by faith. Lord, may it humble us. May it make us a joyful people. Uh, Lord, may it um, Lord, give us good news to tell. Father, I pray for each person here within the sound of my voice, Lord, even over the internet as this is live streamed out later. God, I pray that you would allow people to come to the end of themselves that they might trust wholly and only in you and that all the glory might go unto you in jesus name i pray amen